All right, the rest of you can open up to James chapter 4, where we have been for a little season of time now. Uh, this morning we are uh, entering into the land of BFFs. How many of you know what BFF stands for? Good. <laughs> Some of you are like, what is that? Someone tell me what BFF stands for. Best friend forever. BFFs have a way of changing. Sometimes people are BFFs for a while and then it changes. Sometimes within the week it goes from on again, off again. And this is the life of people sometimes. I want you to think of some friendships this morning just as we open up and, uh, and be thinking about things. I don't know if, um, if you've had one of these experiences, but I think most of us have had um, a, a Smeagol turn Gollum you know, story where we got to be friends with, with a person in one realm of what we thought they were, and then they got a little weird on us. Uh, maybe we're that friend. I don't know. If, if that's the case, we'll have a small group for you later on in the year. Um, here's what friendship meant in the old days, okay? Let me just tell you. Kids, listen up. Those of you who are, you know, uh, 18 and under, let me, just, let me just tell you. It used to mean that you met them and were introduced in some way, okay, in person. You saw them and, and you exchanged names, perhaps. Uh, perhaps. You would have a, a conversations to kind of get to know them a little bit better. We would use the telephone, okay? This is pre-cell phone. It had a wire on it, and we would, we would call each other up and talk, and once in a while we'd use email, um, a great invention from the 90s. Uh, then you'd get together, and you'd hang out, and you'd do stuff together. You might invite them to your birthday party, and you might send them an e-card or a real card at Christmas or their birthday, okay? This was friendships way back in the day. Now, it's really just a click. Right? You just add the friend, and it's, it's a lot easier to, to get friends. Um, and some of you have more friends than you know. So, like, in other words, you look at them. My rule of thumb is this. If I don't know this person and don't, you know, don't have any, you know, connection, why would I add them as a friend? Some people say, wow, I've been requested as a friend, you know, by 46 people today. And they go, accept, 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 and they just accept them all. And then they get to a place, I've talked to people who really like this. Some of you may be there, it, you know, there's ways to get help. But I've talked to them, I said, you know, and they've said, they, you know, I have friends on Facebook. I don't even know who they are. I don't even know when or why I would have accepted them as a friend. And that's where you say, you know what, you have a problem. Um, now, ending friendships on Facebook and ending friendships back in the day is tricky. Either way, it's tricky. Uh, Burger King decided to run this campaign about a year and a half ago for people to purge their friends. These same people I'm talking about who just accepted a bunch, like, what was I thinking? I don't even want to be friends with that person. I don't even know who that person is. So they said, let's run a campaign to, to purge friendships. And here's what it would be. If you defriended, okay, 10 people from your Facebook account, you got a free Whopper. Now, they said up front... We are going to inform the people that you're defriending that they were defriended for a Whopper, right? Now, I don't know what this must have caused for people, but I'm saying defriending is tricky no matter how you slice it. But when you add a Whopper thrown in and Burger King is communicating to that friend, your friend thinks that your friendship is worth one-tenth of a sandwich. I mean, that can't go over well. I don't know how you recover from that. I think it probably severed a lot. They're not still running that campaign. So I think it may have been a bit of a bust. Um, so the reality is defriending on Facebook and defriending in person uh, is still a real challenge. But we're going to be talking this morning about befriending and defriending and, and kind of how this looks on some more important levels. James has been talking about the tests of true faith. And the next test of true faith is one's relationship to the world. 
How do you relate to the world? And how you relate to the world directly affects and impacts how you relate to God. They're linked forever. And the way that you relate to one affects the way that you relate to the other. Now, we've been applying godly wisdom. James talked to us about, here's what heavenly wisdom looks like. I hope that this has been going on in our home and in my own mind. I hope you've been noticing godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Because when you see them lined up next to each other, you can just see it. You can just spot it. You can say, wow, that's worldly wisdom at work. Wow, that's, that's godly heavenly wisdom at work. And then, and then you turn the mirror inside and you go, wow, that's worldly wisdom at work. I need to let that go. That's godly wisdom at work. I really handled this with a way that would please God and that, and that God gave me the capacity to, to, to think that way. Now, as we apply godly wisdom, Ben applied it last week to some sources of conflict. We looked last week at sources of conflict with ourself, the passions that war within us, and the sources of conflict with other people. And today, we're essentially going to be looking at the source of conflict with God. And let me just say this, that habitual friendship with the world uh, is worldly wisdom, and that is what is keeping us from God. Let me, let me start in verse 1, because we're only going to look at two verses this morning, but I just want to give you some context. James chapter 4, verse 1 says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, no, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, I opened or I closed last week giving you a preview of this week that the first three words were you adulterous people, and many of you came back. So praise God for that. You're in, uh, you're in for truth. You just want to hear it even if it doesn't sound so good. I'll just give you a little tip. We're going to take verse 6 uh, next week and listen to, listen to the preview for next week. But he gives more grace. So that's where we're going next week. Hey, so that's a good thing. That's a, that's a hook for next week. But you adulterous people... James is picking up on something that he surely must have heard his half-brother Jesus talk about all the time as they walked around together. And that is this language that talks about our relationship with God in marriage love language kinds of terms. Now, I think that it's helpful for me to hear our walk with God this way because it differentiates when we say things like this. I really love quesadillas, right? Or I really love the giants, and we throw that term around a whole bunch. But when we put it in marriage terms, we understand we're not talking about that kind of love. And the English language is fairly limited in how it describes the word love. Other languages tend to do a much better job being able to just use one word and communicate. That's love, but that's this kind of love that we're talking about. And we're going to see that the Bible uh, repeatedly talks about Married language. Remember the Smitten series. Some of you were here last summer. Uh, we called it the Summer of Love. And it was, uh, it was really going through the Psalms. And what we looked at was that the Psalms, in a way, was a little bit of a, of a DTR. It was defined the relationship, where people are kind of hanging out, they're getting together. But then let's really have the talk, 
at some point and decide, what are we doing here? Are we just friends? Are we hanging out? What's going on? And here's Psalms where it comes along and it uses all of this language um, talking about a love relationship. Now, uh, we look at this statement and, and we see that God is love, and I don't think any Christian or good church-going person would ever look at that and be uncomfortable with that. They would look at that and say, yeah, of course that's true. Um, but but here's, here's the reality is that God is lover. And that's where all of a sudden there's a little uncomfort level where you say, ooh, that, that feels different. That sounds different to me than God loves me. Thinking of God as our lover is a whole different ballgame, and it makes ourselves uncomfortable in some ways. But here's the truth. God is lover. I'm going to just draw your attention to a few things to show why James is using adultery language. You adulterous people. Remember, he's writing to Christians. Christians are in a covenant relationship to God. They've been betrothed. They've been promised. They're in vows together. And he goes from my brethren, which is a really warm tone. He's going to get there again in the letter. But in this part of the letter, he's saying, you adulterous people. Getting their attention, I would imagine. Much of the Psalms that we looked at last summer are written by David. Now, David wrote these, many of them, as a king. Not only as a king, but as a battle-hardened, full-grown man. And when you look at the language of many of the Psalms of David, he sounds like a lovesick sophomore girl after summer camp. He is gushing about God. He's gushing and aching for God. And we talked about what would it be like if a 40-year-old grown CEO met you around the water cooler and started talking this way about God. It would be weird for you. But I wonder if there'd be a part of you that would say, man, I wish I was that alive and that vibrant and that longing and that frankly smitten in my walk with God to be aching to have tears filling up my pillow at night and these kinds of conversations this theme is woven into all of scripture now there's some good news to it just listen to Isaiah 50, 54 5 you can write it down if you want for your maker is your husband let that sentence land on you for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62.5 says this, As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isn't it powerful to think that when God went to choose for himself a people, he went as a bridegroom would go and choose a bride. And then once having chosen, he rejoices over that bride. And celebrates her. Now there's some bad news to the idea that this theme of God as lover is woven into scripture. And that is this. There's been some cheating going on. Now the Old Testament is filled with prophets. God would send a prophet to his people. A prophet in essence was a newspaper or a megaphone. It was a message from God. And I don't know of anywhere else in Scripture where this is so highlighted, for me at least, than in the person and story and book of Hosea. If you haven't read Hosea in a while, it's a short read. Go and read it. Now, not unique to Hosea is that God gave him a message to come and proclaim to the people their spiritual infidelity, the fact that they had violated their marriage covenant. That's not unique to Hosea. Here's what's unique to Hosea. God told Hosea to, to basically dramatize this with his life. 
So instead of just going and, and saying this message, that wasn't getting through. So like any good preacher, God uses an illustration. But he takes the illustration really far and he turns it into a living drama to get the message across to the people. Let me give you two verses that will give you a little snapshot of the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. We're barely into the book. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, there it is. He's sending a prophet speaking to Israel through the prophet Hosea. He said to him, Go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Little side note. If you ever feel called into ministry, don't think it's all glamour and glitz. Hey, this guy gets to be a prophet. Good. Here's your task. Here's your role. You know what's phenomenal? Hosea proved himself a friend of God. How do I know that? Because he obeyed. Jesus said it really simple. If you love me, you obey me. So Hosea goes and he obeys. I mean, I can't imagine the gut-wrenching heart, heartache that would have followed in this. But let me fast forward to chapter 3 and read one verse. Hosea 3.1 says this, Then the Lord said to me, after Gomer, his wife, had gone away from him again, the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. The love and the worship of anything or anyone other than God is spiritual adultery. Verse 4, you adulterous people, James is saying to his brethren. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know you're sitting here thinking like I would read this and say, not me. You'll never catch me worshiping false gods from other religions. You'll never catch me going after little g-gods. Think about this, though. James isn't correcting the building of monuments for worship or of what is and isn't sacrificed to idols in this conversation. What he's going after is this. Look at verse 4 again. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To put it in Facebook terms, when you accept the friend request from the world, as an added bonus, you make yourself an enemy of God. They can't be compatible. To be a friend of the world is, by definition, to be an enemy of God. Now, we know the reverse is true from other places of Scripture and from Jesus' own life, right? To accept friendship with God is to be now an enemy of the world. Let's take a look at this and kind of unpack it a little bit. What's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? Who knows it? Just call it out. Huh? Love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? That's, that's at the top. That's at the top. And when he's talking about, James is using adulterous people, and later on he talks about jealousy. Again, don't you hear the lover language in all of this? And God says, for your own good. My jealousy is for your own good. It's not like we would put, many of you have a aversion to God being a jealous God. But look at it. It's one of his names. It's one of the ways that he reveals himself to us. 
I'm not going to take the time to read it, but, but he, 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 he does it. Now, to see that done in perfection is different than our tainted version of jealousy. Usually, our jealousy is centered around us, isn't it? It's a selfish kind of jealousy. I'm not getting what I want from you. I don't want to share you with other people, so I'm going to be jealous and be weird and crazy. God's jealousy is always for our good. First commandment is that you shall know the gods before me. And running to the world, being friends with the world, amounts to cheating on God. And here's God's response. Look at verse 5. He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Reaching further back a few years ago, we decided to look at some of the metaphors that the Bible reveals the church And it helped form our purpose, and it's something that we need to come back to time and time again. And one of the big, poignant pictures in Scripture is that Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. And with each of the metaphors, what we looked at is, what does that mean for their identity? What does that mean for their mission? What are the prohibitions that come along with being uh, this this, uh, kind of, of relationship? Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and it almost sounds like he's echoing the heart of God as he's caring for for the people by writing them a letter. Listen to what he says. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Within the last year, at least two people that are very close to me um, have, have had conversations with me where what I've seen is their sincere and pure devotion to Christ is, being, is, is not only waning, but is running the other way. And they're opening up others into that relationship. And I used this marriage metaphor in a conversation one time saying, if you see me getting emotional, if you see me getting passionate, if you see me getting worked up over this, here's why. I long for you with a jealous, a, a, a godly jealousy. In the same way that you sat there and witnessed me make marriage vows to Becky, if you ever heard me talking about another woman and that I was dating another woman, I was spending time with another woman, I would want you as someone who loved me and witnessed my vows to say, wait a minute, what are you doing? I would want you in my face. I'm not in great terms uh, in terms of speaking spiritually about things with either person right now. They don't want to talk about that kind of thing with me right now. And I've had to go back and apologize saying, you know what, I was a little too strong here, I apologize. It's just that I care about you so much. I love you enough to tell what, what, I, what, I, what I believe is the truth. Sincere and pure devotion. So thinking about the church as the bride of Christ, what does that say for her identity? Think about this. Every woman that I've ever met longs to know that she is beautiful. That's just something that God has wired into the heart of a woman. And as a bride, much is confirmed in the choosing that happens to her. He chose me. He values me. He wants to be with me. He is saying, by this choice, I'm beautiful. Isn't it a gift that God speaks about how we are to relate to him and how he relates to us in marriage kinds of terms? 
What good news this is. The God that I thought was mad at me, disappointed with me, sickened by me, ready to throw the book at me, all of which, if you want to talk justice, he'd be justified in doing, is actually loving me, pursuing me, cherishing me, and longing for me. Friends, walk in that identity. It changes everything. Some of you, I know, still struggle with performing to get on God's good side as if human effort amounted to anything. We can know in our heads that human effort is not what gets us saved. It's only the grace of God. And yet we can still act on performance, act on doing, pull away and feel distant when we know we've done something wrong instead of running into the forgiving arms of God. One of the things we did with each of these metaphors was to look at what's forbidden. You know what's forbidden for the bride of Christ? It's unfaithfulness. It's really, really simple. As the bride of Christ, you are to be a faithful bride. That's pretty simple to get. For anyone married, wanting to be married, married, used to be married, or never thinks they will get married. They all get that. That a bride is to be faithful. Now, there's kind of this phenomenon in Facebook, uh, which, which is called the relationship status. And the whole idea of updating it as soon as possible. And one of the things that people love to do, uh, this is a new phenomenon in marrying younger people, is that um, we just had a wedding here not that long ago. And in that room, in the fish room where the kids hang out, we're all in there just after. I mean, I just said I do. I just introduced them. They walked out. What were they doing? I'm changing it till I'm married. They're changing their Facebook relationship status because it's a big deal. They've been waiting to have that. They couldn't wait to to, to get it out. I, I'm wondering if soon that's just be a regular part of a of a wedding service. You know, now we're gonna pause now, and before I introduce them, let's go ahead and change the status, and then we'll just kind of move on with the service. I don't know. It's weddings of the future. Now, what's interesting is is many of them have their own little you know their own little icons that that go with it. It's all quite clever. Um, now. For those of you who say this, I've never cheated on God, nor have I ever been unfaithful to God, nor would I ever consider committing adultery with God. Let me just ask this. When you think about a relationship status and the way that people relate to one another, God gives some very clear guidelines, hard and fast rules, in fact, not just suggestions, about how that is to function. There's a design and a plan that's God-honoring to that. But what we see in our culture uh, and in many of our families and maybe in our own lives is that, is that we see a variance from that. There's cohabitation. There's things that say, let's try this out. I'm not ready to, to commit all the way. There's friends with benefits. There's all kinds of different variations of the way God wants it to go on. Now, I've intentionally left off two relationship status things and as I as I get you thinking about the fact that maybe you think you've never cheated on God maybe this have you ever cohabitated with God you live your life God can live his life and when you need to you'll kind of interact with each other have you ever used God for the benefits that he gives to you you know what I love have God God around when I'm right into the middle of a test or when I've got a giant presentation that's due and I've been a little bit of a procrastinator in getting it done. I love having God in the hospital room. Man, that's a good place. I love having God before a meal. I mean, a nice simple prayer, that's a good Christian thing to do. It feels good to come to church and, and be with people and sing some songs and, and, and feel just the warmth of, of Christ. 
wonder if we're using God sometimes for the benefits rather than being in a real relationship with him. I wonder how many are simply and openly in an open relationship with God. It's a common thing now to grab a little bit of Jesus, right, and add him in with a smorgasbord of other saviors and kind of mix it all together. That's an open relationship. And I'll tell you, it's one-sided. Turn to Revelation 2 really quick. It's in the back of your Bible, probably one of the easiest books to find. Revelation chapter 2. This is Jesus walking amongst the churches, and he has a message for seven different churches. And many of you have read this, these passages a lot. But in Revelation 2, it comes, it comes to, uh, these are different expressions. The church collectively, large C, is all one. But like we have uh, little segments, little local churches that we belong to, this is the local church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. Listen to what a bride the church at Ephesus was. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up with, uh, for, for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. You read verses 2 and 3, and you think, what a bride. Faithful, hardworking, enduring, smart. I mean, discerning false prophets and taking a stand where taking a stand is necessary. And then he levels verse 4, and he says this, but I have this against you. Of all these great traits that are going on, bride, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And then here's the instruction. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. What he's saying is this. Turn from starting in love with God and then somehow finishing it in good works. In just drudgingly getting through. We're going to do this to the end. Getting in the habit of doing churchy kinds of things. He says, you've fallen. You've fallen from a height that I designed and built into this. And that is that we're intimate lovers. He says, repent, turn. That means turn from your current course of action back to your first love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like it in that it flows out of that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't you love that Jesus gave credence to the fact that the number one most important thing is that you love God. I mean, it could be anything. How many, of, how, how many of you, not by raise of hands, but just by thinking through, how many of you fall into the pattern of this? The number one thing with God is that I serve him. The number one thing is that I do for him. The number one thing is that I not sin against him. That's not the number one thing according to God. The number one thing is that you love Him. He's longing for this intimate relationship more than anything else. His desire is oneness. His plan is intimacy. Let me just read what I often read at a wedding. And I want to do this because I want you, I want to challenge you to nurture the bliss of knowing that a bridegroom has chosen you 
And I want you to walk and live in that knowing. I want you to be thrilled all over again with the fact that you're chosen, that you're beloved. Listen to these vows. Do you take God to be your lawful wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, being to him a loving and devoted wife, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, to honor, keep, and cherish him, forsaking all others, as long as you both shall live. Do you so pledge your love? And the bride says, I do. Just like a regular wedding day that we could experience here on earth, that pronouncement of husband and wife forever alters every other day of the rest of your life. And when you're married to God, here's what's beautiful. He will never, ever cheat on you. He will never, ever let you down. He will never, ever leave you. He is going to love you, bride, in the way that we all long to be loved. Now, befriending God, let's go back to James. Befriending God is well covered in other parts of James and in other places. And so I'm actually going to leave some of that for the following verses that we're going to get to in a few weeks. I want to use the remainder of our time in investigating what does it look like to defriend the world? What does it look like to defriend the world? Now, James talks about the world in a few different places. James 1.27, he's concerned with us not becoming stained by the world. He wants us to remain unstained. Here he's talking about no friendship with the world, as in don't make peace with it. Whenever you talk about this, it begs this question. How is a Christian to interact and get along with in this life, with the world? And that's an ongoing battle, and it presents so many different challenges that I hope you wrestle with this often. Because if you aren't wrestling with this often, my hunch is that you're slowly just slipping into a cultural norm, which most likely is not going in the streams and pathways of God, because that's not the currents that, that the world runs in. Let me start with two extremes. One extreme is separation. That is, isolate from the evils that surround us. Now, one word absolutely shatters this from being a valid option, and it's called incarnation. It's the fact that Jesus, who was pure and holy and God, came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. That alone shows us that separation isn't necessary and isn't modeled for us in any way, shape, or form. Let me give you a few other thoughts. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Where? To the world, right? All of it. Jesus is sending us out into the world. So certainly just separating from all evil and building up a barricade is not the answer. That's, not, that, that's contrary to the mission that Jesus leaves for us. He also said this, that we're to be in the world and not of it. We're told to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked generation. Where does light shine the best? In the dark. So we're to shine 
as lights in the midst of this crooked generation. Jesus said to let your light shine before men so that it brings glory to himself. And finally, one other thought is that in this world, you will have trouble. That's been promised by Jesus. It's been confirmed by the early church and is found throughout the New Testament as well. In this life, you will have trouble. Where does trouble arise for a Christian? When they're in conflict, right? With themselves, with others, with the world. So if separation was an option, none of this would make any sense at all. Here's the other extreme. If separation is one extreme, what's the other extreme? Integration, right? I mean, this is the, this is the time when you've been at work for eight years somewhere. And you've been a Christian all that time. And the person in the cubicle next to you hears you say something and they say, you're a Christian? You know you might have integrated into the world a little bit if it's been eight years and they share a cubicle space next to you and that's what they're coming up with. They're in shock and dismay going, well, I had no idea. Just for the record, that's never a compliment to a Christian. It just isn't. It's not, a, it's not a match to see how long we can keep our identity hidden. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with the darkness? When you want to talk about integration, you read that verse and it tears at that. And it says, wow, maybe I need to rethink things. Here's another one, Ephesians 5.11 Take no part. Which part? No part. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And finally, walk as children of the light. So I've just given you two extremes. Don't separate. Don't become a Christian and move off to a Christian commune, eat at Christian places, go to Christian everythings, and just, and just make it your life's goal not to interact with the world. That's ungodly. If God wanted that to happen, the second you made a true statement of faith and you were saved, what would happen to you? Just like that, you'd be taken up. Gone. But he's left us here. The other extreme is don't integrate. Don't be so incognito that people can't tell one bit of difference that you live your life, you manage your household, you raise your children, you work the job the exact same way as the rest of the world. It ought to look different and feel different. Let me give you three quick uh, thoughts about the world just uh, that I hope will be helpful. One is that you are not of this world. Long before this was a bumper sticker or a cool t-shirt to wear, this was the truth of God. Okay, You are not of this world. John 15, 19 says this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, uh, but, but you... But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, Jesus said some pretty strong things. People who want to make him a mamsy-pamsy, he was a good teacher, nice guy stuff, have never heard him say, drink my blood, eat my flesh. The world hates you, right? Here's the point. Don't hunt for brownie points with the world. The world will sometimes cheer you, celebrate you, lift you up on your shoulders, pat you on the back and say, great job. And the next day, they'll want to kill you. Read the Gospels. This is what happened to Jesus, right? Celebrate him as king one day. Chant for him. Sing for him. Crucify him the next. 
All the while, what is Jesus doing? God's will. So, as you go through life doing God's will, following Jesus, you may be cheered on some levels. But watch it, because the next day, the next week, they'll turn on you. And in essence, they might look at you and chant, crucify. Now, we're, we've gotten to our, to our Cowboys Dumb for the week, and uh, this is from one of my favorite movies of all time. It's, it's, uh, it's a guy, John Dunbar, who's writing in his diary, and some of you remember the character Timmons. And he says this, If it wasn't for my companion, I believe I'd be having the time of my life. John Dunbar has set out to see the frontier before it's gone, swallowed up by civilization. So he heads out there, and he's given this guide Timmons. And if you've seen the movie, he's a rather foul character. As you are going through this life, just recognize that you will have some companions around you that will fly in the face of everything you hold dear, of everything that you hold precious. I hope that, you're, I hope that you can feel in your body when someone takes the name of your Lord and Savior who died for you and loves you and is your husband and they say Jesus Christ as a swear word. Do you feel that? I mean, does that land on you? It should. If Jesus is your husband, it should make your skin crawl when that goes on. And that's commonplace. So vulgarity, things said in the locker room, things said around the office, perhaps in your own family, will at times run in the face of everything you're about. Let me just talk to a few different segments of you for a second and see if any of this rings true. Expect to be the one going against the current. And when you're going against the current, if you've ever gone back into the movie theater when everyone's coming out, there's a lot of bumping, excuse me, pardon me, uh, you know, mean faces, whatever. But if you forgot your kid in there, I'm not saying I've done this, but you would, you would go through that, right? You would get yourself back upstream. Man, that's the Christian life. Excuse me, pardon me, bumping, hey, you're going the wrong way, you know, anger, whatever. Students, you will stand out from the crowd, and you will wonder at times whether it is worth continuing. Here's my challenge to you. Keep struggling. It is worth it. Keep standing out for the right reasons. Keep being persecuted for the right reasons. Not for doing wrong, but for doing the right thing. Don't look for pats on the backs or kudos from anyone else other than God. That's students. How about parents? Parents, you will be odd to your friends and family. You will. You'll maybe even be maligned. It is uncommon to parent and think of your kids the way God desires you to think about your kids. My challenge to you is this. Keep being weird. Keep being different. Not in those weird ways. You can change those. But in those biblical ways, when people say, man, you're doing your kids a disservice. Man, how could you possibly do that with your kids? You remember, you think, man, these aren't even my kids. I'm, they're a, I'm a steward of them. I love them more than life itself. But I've got them for a season, and God's given me a job to do. And I count it with the utmost of, of solemnness and and passion that I'm going to do this well. I'm going to make disciples out of them. Third is to workers. If you have a job, 
This is for you. Because you work first for God as your boss, you will be hated. You aren't the property of your company, and you certainly aren't defined by what you do. And a performance review that someone who makes more money and has a longer title than you declares about you. You're the bride of Christ. You're in the family of God. And so that's your first allegiance every time. Now your actions may keep some from their God, which is money. What did Jesus say about money and God? You can't serve both, right? Not only can you not be friends with the world and friends with God and try to, try to ride some kind of imaginary fence that doesn't exist, you can't have two things at the top, by definition. So when you say things and do things and make choices that prevent people from worshiping their God, it gets ugly, it gets personal, it may even get violent as you carry yourself as a Christian in a place that may be worshiping a different God, little g, than you do. Plan on it. Here's, here's, uh, um, here's my challenge to you. Silently endure the hatred as a mark of being the bride of Christ. Keep reading what Jesus went through when he was mocked and maligned and shut down by the powers that be. Remember 1 Corinthians 7.31, for the present form of this world is passing away. Let me give you a second thing. The second thing is this. Not only are you not of this world, you are in this world for a reason. My challenge is to show off God where he has you. Public, private, homeschool, dream job, nightmare job, family that looks like the Brady Bunch or family that looks like the Bundys. Whatever your situation is, honor God where you are. Don't fall into this pattern of someday. Someday when this or that changes, I'll really be able to proclaim Christ. Someday I'll really be able to to do these different things for God and and really get to, to treasure Him and prize Him. Honor God right where you are today. Our church, really, as we evaluate a program, as we think about a service, as we talk about how do we invest the money that our church family is is giving here, what are we to be about in the next six months and year and five years? Where are we going? We already have our marching orders from the scripture, and I'll just reiterate it to you. But it's quite simple. That is all evaluated under this one big heading. Are we making disciples? And are we developing and releasing the current disciples we have to be more fruitful in their gifts? That's it. It's fairly simple when you boil it all back down to that. Here's the thing. If that's the church's mission collectively, it's also you as an individual part of that church. What's the church made up? Made up of not drywall, stucco, and and boards. It's made up of people. It's made up of souls. You are the church. You bring the presence of God. You're a temple of the living God when you go to work tomorrow. Powerful. So what should the church be about collectively and individually? Making disciples. 
That should be how we're evaluating this. God, you've left me here for a reason. You know I want to transfer schools. You know I want to be in a different department within this organization. God, I've prayed that you would give me a new family. It just hasn't happened yet. So let me honor you right where I am. Let me be on mission to make disciples and bring you glory in every way I can. So passage, it says, whether you eat or drink or sleep, whatever you do, do all the glory of Christ. We can glorify Christ when we eat lunch today. Isn't that cool? I love to glorify God by sleeping. I don't do it enough, frankly, but I love it. Man, you can glorify God by how you fill out an expense report. You can glorify God by how you do homework when no one's watching. You can glorify God by being on a sports team, by how you drive, by how you share a meal. Remember this, 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I'm here for a reason, God. The daylight is for a season. Let me do what I can while I can while I still have breath because I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Teach me to number my days so I can, I can fulfill the reason, the mission that you have me for. Thirdly is this, love the world as God does. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? That he sacrificed Jesus. Probably the most famous passage in all of Scripture. Treasure the cross in your life so much that it is the highest and best thing that you could possibly boast in, talk about with people, or point people toward. Some of you go on vacation, stay at a cool place, and you're an evangelist for that place. You're like, you have to stay here. It is the coolest place. Right across the street is this, and the food is great, and the scenery is awesome, and the weather is cool. That's great. That's not wrong in and of itself. But what if you were to do that? What, what, if you, what if you had been to that place, but you're so enamored with Christ and what he's doing in your life and the goodness of God that it always keeps coming back to the cross, such that it may even annoy people around you? I think a good compliment for a Christian might be, man, can't you talk about anything else besides your Jesus? And you think about it for a second, you're like, I could, but I just don't want to. Man, I just, I just want to tell you about, about the things God's doing in my life. Mimic the kind of love God has for the world. Not for its corrupting nature, but for those trapped in sin's prison. Think about this. Where Jesus abstains from something, you abstain. Where Jesus speaks up, you speak up. If Jesus is mute, you stay silent. Where Jesus lingers, you linger. When Jesus confronts, you confront. Where Jesus sacrifices, you sacrifice. How do you know what Jesus would do? Your little armband doesn't say it. It just says, what would Jesus do? You're like, I don't know. Tell you what you do. You read the first four books of the New Testament, and then you read them again, and you soak in them. And while you're doing that, you're in other places of Scripture, but you keep coming back to the red words in your Scripture. You don't know how Jesus talked? You just read the words he said. You don't know how he interacted and treated with people? You just keep coming back to Jesus. You know, it starts to happen. God guides you by the spirit that's in you. God guides you through your day. And when he does, you just fire back little things. Thanks, God. I know that was you. And pretty soon, pouring out of your life is a Jesus life. Jesus was not friends with the world. In fact, its powers of the day killed him. So you can't look to Jesus and say he was a friend of the world. The world killed him in essence. And yet he was called a friend of sinners, right? 
So there's a tension here. I don't want to make this an easy cut and dry thing. Because I think we'll, I think we'll veer into one of those two extremes. Isolation or integration. If we do. Instead, there's this healthy tension. Jesus was not friends with the world. The world killed him. And yet Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. How did he get that reputation? He was with them. He spent time with them. He shared a meal over them. He told stories with them. He taught them. He walked on the way with them. Remember 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. All right. Let me invite the band up. I want to talk to the friends of God for a minute. Those of you who've made a decision to follow Christ. Those who are the bride of Christ. Those who've been in covenant relationship. You've exchanged vows with God. Are you flirting with the world right now in any part of your life? Are you in a mode of dating God? Or have you really tied the knot? Here's the message. Flirting with the world is flirting with disaster. Repent. Repent and go do the works you did at first. Return to your first love. Before we sing this song that, um, again, music has such a powerful ability to stir up emotion in us, our worship book that Rob was talking about relate a story of this worship uh, leader that went down and, and heard uh, some, some Zulu women singing. And it was haunting and it was beautiful. And he was just really getting captured by it. Of course, c- couldn't understand the language. So he went over to one of the locals, the translator, and he said, said what are the words to what those women are singing? They were down by the river, I think. And, uh, and the words were, um, if you drink the water you will get dysentery and die. So instead of whistle while you work, they were singing these lyrics, right? So music has the ability to move us, even if we don't know what it's being talked about. That's why you can come to church and have kind of an experience, right? You can walk away. Your heart really isn't affected. Your will isn't changed. But you had a church experience. It's possible to come and sing about concepts which you really have nothing uh, to, to, to... know about or or do. Let me close with a scripture. We're going to sing this song, How He Loves Us. We want that, How He Loves Us, to be informed biblically. If the cross offends you, if eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus offends you, you have to work past that because that's how He has manifest, that's how He's shown His love for us in the greatest capacity. John chapter 12, Jesus is days away, probably hours away from the triumphal entry and then, of course, to his eventual death. And it says this in John chapter 12, verse 24. You want to know how to be a friend of God. You want to know how to return to that. There is is a death that needs to occur. We know that Jesus' death has already occurred. We celebrated that in communion. There's ours as well. John chapter 12, verse 24 says this. Jesus talking, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. God, we just confess as a people that we have been unfaithful. I thank you for the truth-telling James that calls it out for what it is, not a distant, remote, ancient practice of idol worship, but of simply befriending the world. And God, I hope that I am praying on behalf of many in this room when I just voice this prayer that if this is your heart, you can agree with. God, I confess flirting with the world. I confess cheating on you, loving this world, loving my life in this world, longing for, daydreaming, thinking and planning only for this life. I repent. I turn this day from that course of action back to my first love. Thank you for being faithful to me. Thank you for illustrating that you still love me. Not only in sending the ancient prophet Hosea, who would go and seek out his wife from prostitution to love her again, but for sending Jesus to come and pursue long and love and forgive us even when we nail him to a cross. God, we thank you that right now as a part of our bodies are elements that are left for us to remind us physically of your love. That we can taste, chew on, feast on redemption. God, it's mysterious, it's wondrous, and we thank you for the start of verse 6, that you give more grace. As we sing right now, God, I pray our hearts would be filled with the truth. I pray we wouldn't let these words slip off of our tongue. But God, that you would pour it and sink it and plant it deep down into our identity so that we'd walk in the truth of who we are. In Jesus' name.